there's just a lot of BS in the industry. And, and I continuously have to tell folks uh, or have the conversation with folks, especially athletes of, Hey, like, I understand you're going to see that other practitioner, the other physical therapist, the other chiropractor, what have you, based on what you're telling me, I think that all you're doing is kicking the can down the road and you're never addressing the actual, again, that we talked about that tendonitis, what the rope is fraying. You're not addressing the rope fraying. You're just kind of distracting and, and snapping the finger over here. So yeah, that's what I've learned, I guess. Welcome to the Barbend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Hey folks, David Tao with the Barbend Podcast here. Today we're going back to the archives, something we don't do that often, but this is an important series of topics. We're reposting an episode with Dr. Eugene Bo Babenko. He's a doctor of physical therapy and an old friend of mine dating back over a decade at this point. And this is about the myths and misconceptions surrounding injuries, training, a lot of things that maybe you wanted to ask a doctor of physical therapy, but never had a chance. I hope you get a lot out of this episode. I certainly learned a lot talking with Dr. Babenko when recording it originally. Bo, thanks so much for joining us today. The first thing I got to ask, because you're always constantly learning. Every time we chat, you're talking about something, whether it's like a new module you're learning, someone you're learning something new from. What is the latest in physical therapy and recovery that kind of has your attention right now? Right now, it's bringing everything back to the basics. That's I think everyone's getting caught up with at-home workouts and, and things like that. And I think that it's a great chance. And what I've been doing with a lot of my clients is with the research, going back to the basic primal movements, how well do you push? How well do you pull? How well do you include tempo? Are we looking at tendon things that have been bugging you for a few years and you might've been pushing through? So at the end of the day, as much as I keep learning, it all comes back to the same basic stuff of the body is what the body is. The rules are the same. <laughs> we can keep trying to find all these cool new things that technology keeps bringing at us. But at the end of the day, it comes back to, yeah, how, how many tempo pushups can you do and body weight things. So uh, in the physical therapy world, it's coming back to let's really look at injuries. And this is a time to reset uh, a lot of these, these constant kind of simple concepts. Let's talk about tempo because that's something that I know you and I were kind of sending some workouts back and forth at the beginning of quarantine. I know that for a lot of time, people didn't have access to their gyms. People, Some people still don't have access to their gyms, so they're wondering how they can get that resistance stimulus at home or with lighter weights. And tempo is a term like people keep bringing up and bringing up and bringing up. As an athlete, a coach, and a physical therapist, because you're wearing kind of all three of those hats, how do you view tempo as factoring into a resistance training protocol? Yeah, it really, again, comes down to the individualization of it all. So if I'm taking a look at you and, and we're talking about some concepts, I'm saying, you know, oh, you have a little, you know, niggle in your uh, elbow uh, that's been there for a while. And, and uh, you know, how, how do we address that? Can we do one armed tempo work? Do we need to do a, a bicep tendon type of program? That's one thing that I, I will jump, you know, come back to saying that tendon work tends to be very poorly understood and heavy, slow resistance training is the, the kind of gold standard for me at this point of helping people improve their quote unquote tendonitis, 
which again, we can go further down that rabbit hole of what that means. But as far as tempo goes, yeah, it's, it's, I wish I could give a simple answer. I know on these podcasts, it's great to give uh, a, an easy answer of like, hey, everyone should be doing four sets down, you know, holding at the bottom for three seconds and that kind of thing. But it really comes down to progressively overloading that. Again, I've been recently working with a lot more older folks too. So for them, it's, it's really coming down to, we just want to move nice and slow and smooth through that uh, range of motion. So you're not rushing things as well. Uh, so you don't have faulty movement patterns either. So it's got to be kind of individualized in my, in my really kind of generic answer. I, I heard that, I mean, I've heard that when I first started strength training, let's, let's dial it way back. When I first started strength training, I saw it two different kind of realms of thoughts. Like you could go really fast. You could do the weightlifting style, power movements, moving with speed. The faster a barbell moves, the lighter it'll feel. And then on the other end, I saw powerlifting, and this was a misunderstanding on my part. Powerlifting was very slow. It was kind of grinding out the reps. We obviously know that to not necessarily be the case. But I saw it as kind of two ends of the spectrum, the very fast explosive movements and the very slow grindy movements. And I heard people telling me that both of those at different times were bad for you. You know, if you move too quickly and you catch weights with a lot of force, it, it's going to be bad for your joints. And then the other end, well, you shouldn't grind out reps because that's going to be bad for, for your tendons and your joints as well. And I mean, neither of them are completely right. You talk about a lot of these kind of nagging tendon issues. Whenever you use the word tendonitis, I know you kind of tend to use air quotes. And this podcast is not for medical advice, it's just kind of for informational purposes and enrichment. But why do you use air quotes when you when you talk about that in the context of resistance training and time under tension? Well, tendonitis, uh, by definition, medical definition, is, the itis refers to the initial inflammation that's happening. So if you've had this for more than three months, that no longer is an itis. Uh, and when we get down to the the nitty gritty of the the you know biochemistry biology of it all, if we look at it under a microscope. If it's been there for more than three months, that's technically tendinosis. So it's not an itis. You can have, again, it gets a little tricky. You can have a, a, a re-inflammation, an acute on chronic, as we call it. it. I do think it's important that we understand what phase of injury you are in. And, and you know, I use the term injury also kind of with, with air quotes because um, it's not necessarily an injury. It's something we can, we can constantly be working through. If you start to feel it when, when you're first, uh, you know, warming up, and it goes away as you start doing some lifts and you start adding some load. Again, that's a sign that when we're talking as one-on-one, -on -one, uh, we might have to say, hey, like this might lead us to try this intervention. Tendons, when they are healthy, are actually stronger than steel. They're lined up in parallel. And when you have that initial inflammation, that itis, again, um, I'll use the CrossFit example. You know, someone jumps into class, they do a, a workout like Murph where they do 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups. And some, you know, I know some people who that was one of their first workouts. Bottom line is, it's like getting punched in the face <laughs> and, and, and your jaw might be a little clicky, you know, so it's a little out of place. So what happens to those uh, parallel lined up tendons is they get a little wiggly. Uh, so it's kind of like fraying rope, right? That's the other analogy we use. So if that's going on for three months plus, and it's not really getting back to straightened out, the longer you have that kind of issue and it gets more disorganized and more frayed. That's what the osis is. And again, some people have this for years. You know, I can talk from my own personal situation where again, in my elbows, um, I know that I was always kind of poking around in there. It didn't really cause me issues. You know, there's a lot of grip stuff in, in training for CrossFit that, that I mostly did. And I knew that was there. It would go away most of the time. It never really lingered for me. I would do as much as I could to, to thwart it as possible. And now as, as I'm a little further out from competing at a higher level, 
I am seeing some of that pop up uh, now as I'm going to driving more and again, being at home more, not being not having access to as much weight as possible. I have a limitation of 185 pounds. You know, I'm lucky for it, but at the same time, it, it's not, you know, I'm used to having more weight. So I think my body's kind of jumping at that, like saying, hey, like I want more weight basically. So I'll bring this all back to, to the, your question of specific adaptations to impose demands. Again, this is one of the most basic concepts in strength and conditioning, uh, the, the SAID principle, S-A-I-E-D. And it's what our bodies adjust to. So when we talk about tempo, if to your uh, other point about, you know, fast versus slow, kind of, if you're only doing fast stuff, yes, your body will probably not do well with it. If you're only doing slow stuff, you, again, that's going to have these effects on your body. So your body will adapt to whatever you, you, you impose upon it and it's going to have other implications. So that's what we really have to pay attention to. That's where we have to come back and say, David, what's going on with your body? You know, how's your stress? How's your sleep? All these other factors as well. How's your digestion? Things that we can easily ignore. But and when we look down at, the, at the, the workouts, the physical implications of it all, we have to say, what is happening? What has been happening? What is your training age? All these different factors. And, and what's, how do we then you know, steer the ship in the right direction? What are some of the over-adaptations that you see? Well, let's start with CrossFit because that's a, a sport that, that you trained in at a, at a pretty high level and you've worked with numerous clients on. What are some of the, you know, you talk about folks who, who just train fast or just train slow that's going to have implications. It's going to kind of work its way down the chain. What are some of those implications you see in CrossFit training when it comes to certain biases in their training and in their movement? Yeah, the, the biggest one that jumps out is, we, I joked around that, you know, it's going to be lac-o-lax syndrome, that in CrossFit, it's very easy to not use your lat muscles for those, you know, latissimus dorsi, those big muscles that help us do pull-ups. And even though CrossFitters can do, you know, 100 pull-ups unbroken, and the, 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 the criticism online, of course, is that, oh, they're just flailing around. I do think that there is a place and, and a skill that Kipping and butterfly pull-ups, uh, you know, we can certainly have that argument, but that's not what we're going to do today. But, but the lack of lat muscle engagement, and again, I personally suffered from this. I, at some point, my best, I believe I was able to do 55 unbroken butterfly pull-ups, which again, whatever that's worth <laughs> in, in the grand scheme of life. But the, the important thing there is that I, I ended up with a few shoulder kind of small injuries as I went because I wasn't, I was focusing on overtraining that skill set of doing muscle ups, doing again, a high volume of pull ups, toes to bar. And it just never really required that I engage my lats kind of isolated or specifically, even if I was doing strict pull ups, I could still do strict pull ups. But that is one of the things that I've seen happen in a lot of CrossFitters. And that w what also can lead to because again, everyone's going to compensate a little differently. For me, it was more of my backside of my shoulders, my posterior kind of around the scapula, I had a little, you know, knots build up and that that caused some pain down the line that we had to deal with. Other people I see a lot of biceps tendinitis, uh, again, tendinosis, whatever, whichever, uh, you know, how technically uh, we want to go down that path, but a lot of uh, biceps issues that again, start to pull into that because that again, to geek out on a little connects into the labrum of the shoulder. So if you've heard of a torn labrum, probably more in the sports setting, but if you've been in around a CrossFit gym, I've certainly seen a small percentage of folks with uh, who eventually end up needing labral surgeries. And again, you know, we could we could certainly go down the path of uh, what's the place for surgery, things like that. But overdoing it in CrossFit, I think the number one thing is is shoulder issues. Number two would probably be again going too fast, not paying enough attention to form. Probably some back 
stuff going on where earlier on in CrossFit, we used to joke around maybe when you and I met back around 2010, Tao, that it was, uh, we called it shark fin syndrome, where you just get that overdevelopment of the erector spinae, those muscles around the low back, because people are just rounding and their backs can adapt to that to some extent, but eventually it, it probably caused some issues. So th- those are the two biggest ones that, that I've definitely seen. Not in, again, we could talk about hips, knees and go down the path, but those, the shoulders and the, uh, the, those low backs are definitely the, the two biggest uh, in CrossFit. Just to time peg this, uh, I think we met around 2012. I'm not as OG in the space as, as you are, so I have to tip my, tip my hat to that. 2010 is like, it is literally a decade ago, but it's like two decades ago in the realm of functional fitness and the, and the, CrossFit, <laughs> com- and the CrossFit community, especially when you compare what was expected of elite athletes then versus what's expected of elite athletes now. Sometimes just your average your average exerciser these days seems like they could give a very elite athlete in 2010 a run for their money. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mind boggling to see kind of the evolution of the sport. And again, I think, uh, yeah, you're right. It was 2012. I, uh, I started 2010 and I, I always associate you with my entire <laughs> CrossFit journey, but you're right. Uh, and, and for those listening at home, the funny kind of anecdote here is, uh, uh when we met at CrossFit NYC, which was the, the most prominent kind of gym in the area, I guess. And I saw you over in the corner there and it looked for some reason, you know, maybe it was the Afro, the Afro added a few inches uh, and, and body dimensions, but I really swore like, well, who's this, who's this huge human being? Like I was, I was, I was coaching a class, I think. And, and I looked over and I was like, you were doing something over on the side by the squat rack over there. And, and uh, yeah, turns out you're not as huge as, as <laughs> I don't know. It is weird because, yeah, you, you had this perception. I remember the first time we actually like worked. I think we, we back squatted together. We front squatted or something like that together. And do you remember just being like really surprised at what I was lifting? And you were afterwards, you're just like, I'm going to be honest. I had only seen you out of the corner of my eye before. And I just assumed there was a lot more weight on the barbell and that you were a lot <laughs> bigger. I didn't really know how to take that uh, <laughs> because – that both means that maybe I like present as being this very big, strong guy, but up close, but you know, I just got to keep people at a distance because they'll assume <laughs> they'll assume from, uh, from a distance. Certainly let's talk a little bit about how your approach to what you do in the professional setting has changed in the, in the past 10 years, because you came in to, you came in across it. I believe you, you were, you were already practicing in physical therapy at that point, right? Correct. Yes. So how has your approach to working, let's specifically go with, with athletes here, right? How has your approach to working with athletes evolved over the past 10 years? Or maybe a, a better question, what are some ways in which it has evolved? Because I'm sure it's evolved quite significantly as anyone's profession does over a decade. Yeah, it's been, it's been uh, similar to the, the CrossFit evolution. I think it's leaps and bounds from where, where it was in, in 2010. Again, I got my doctorate in 2008. Uh, I had my CSCS, and I had to really unlearn a lot of things. Uh, and when I first started out, it was about assessing and kind of doing these screens that, that you know, that you've heard of the FMS, functional movement screens, a very popular screen, things like that, where I'm just looking at movement and, and, and looking at faults. And, and uh, in 10 years, again, I've seen, you know, thousands and thousands of athletes and thousands and thousands of, of probably hundreds of thousands of squat reps, <laughs> you know, it's, so it's, it's, uh, it's it, the more reps you get with things like that, it's, it should be changing your vision, so to speak. So uh, I think the biggest thing for me is, is I had to unlearn in, in CrossFit, we, we tend to be much more conservative, what, what was taught to me in school. So it has to be, oh, hey, you have back pain, let's start you deadlifting. 
oh, 85 year old grandma, like, yeah, pick up, I'm going to teach you right now how to pick up that 32 kilogram kettlebell. And, you know, again, you're going to get these faces like, what are you, you're going to break her like, and, and the reality of it is uh, the human body is very resilient. That's one big thing. Uh, and, and there's a, the other big thing, I guess, the longer I've been practicing, I'll have to say is feel, now you're making me feel like an old man, <laughs> but yeah, that was not my intention. I promise. That's all right. I guess that's payback for me saying you were really big and not, but <laughs> at the same time. Um, but the big thing, uh, that, that, that I feel like I really learned is, yeah, there's just, uh, you know, hopefully this, this does goes, goes the right way, or we can certainly dive into it, but it, there's just a lot of BS in the industry. And, and I continuously have to tell folks, uh, or have the conversation with folks, especially athletes of, Hey, like, I understand you're going to see that other practitioner, the other physical therapist, the other chiropractor, what have you based on what you're telling me, I think that all you're doing is kicking the can down the road and you're never addressing the actual, again, that we talked about that tendonitis, what the rope is fraying. You're not addressing the rope fraying. You're just kind of distracting and, and snapping the finger over here. So it's easy to manage the symptoms and to get you to the next training session. And I understand if you have a competition coming up, cool, let's get to the competition. But again, this is the most common thing I've seen, uh, again, in my, my over 10 years in the, in the fitness space, I guess, is is people just not willing to take any time off and address and really fix those issues. Whereas if you go to the car mechanic and they're like, Hey, like if you keep driving this thing, you know, in, in about a thousand miles, it might blow up or it might, you know, you might, you might break your entire thing and it's going to cost you a lot more money. You're going to need, you know, we'll use the surgery analogy, but for the car, uh, you know, your transmission is going to be shot. So uh, we see that with athletes where again, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be the, uh, what is it, chicken little, guy saying the sky is falling down but hey like i i'm noticing a lot of these little problems going on if we take and three months sounds like you know entire years again in this space where it's very compressed time in fitness but if I, i'm if i'm proposing to them that we take the next three months to really fix and rehab and prehab and and just let's address all these issues so that three months from now you're going to go back and i've seen it for those who actually buy in that they end up being stronger and again somebody who let's say back squats 500 pounds they have issues. They work with me for three months. They start back at 45 pounds to, to back squat and we work them back up to 500 pounds. All of a sudden they have no pain and they're actually back squatting more because we've addressed those mechanics and some of those imbalances that are, are lying deep within their bodies that would never otherwise get addressed. So yeah, that, 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 yeah, that's what I've learned, I guess. What are some of the misconceptions? And this could be among athletes or it could be among the general population that you see clients coming in with when they, when assumptions they have in regard to recovery or training or the rehabilitation process. The number one is, is <laughs> I guess the response is where you think it is. It ain't, which is a, <laughs> which, which, which is a, uh, a con it's a very old school saying by Ida Rolf. Uh, if you've ever heard of Rolfing, have you ever heard of that? Pal? No, no, I haven't. Rolfing is, is like a very, uh, <laughs> very mean looking type of massage. Basically it's, 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 it's based in, you know, at this point, uh, close to probably a hundred years of, of, uh, where Ida Rolf was around in the early 1900s, I think. And, um, it's just very mean and vicious. Anyway, we don't need to talk about rolfing worth looking up for some folks or trying is it, out. Is it, is it safe for work? Rolfing the, the word? Yeah. Rolf. Yeah. Okay, R O L F okay. like rolling on the laughing floor, I guess <laughs> kind of the reverse of that, but R O L F look it up. Um, it's, 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 it's not anything like not safe for work, but uh, it's it's very intense to say the least. And and basically, yeah, it's kind of seeing how much you can take. So uh, almost similar to a shiatsu massage, if anyone's okay. ever had kind of that, but a little 
more in depth. Anyway, the saying is where you think it is, it ain't. You asked me about these misconceptions that people come in with. They come in, they point at their back or they point at their shoulder. And then if I'm looking at their big toe uh, to say like, what's going on? Oh, you're a power lifter or you're an Olympic weightlifter. We need to check all the way up and down the chain because yes, uh, the, where usually the pain is, is not usually where it's coming from. Just be, it's usually where the majority of the stress is happening. So again, when we look at low back pain, you know, sometimes it's because you're deadlifting and you're rounding your back sometimes. But again, I think the body's very resilient and does adapt to those things pretty well. A lot of times it's because the hips are misaligned or there's a, a you know, an issue in your, uh, one of your toes, literally that, that you don't have enough great extension and press off for that toe. So a lot of times, again, we tend to blame. And, and as a patient coming in, I certainly understand I have pain in my back. We need to address that. And, and so you're, but that the, the back pain is the victim. And a lot of times we think of that as the criminal, whereas the criminal is somewhere else. So we got to find that criminal, basically. So that's the number one misconception that uh, I see in clinical practice. What are some of the assessment tools that you utilize these days? And again, this is specifically talking to athletes or talk, uh, looking, looking to and working with athletes when it comes to movement patterns that might trigger a little alarm to say, oh, this is something that, like that car example you gave, like this is, this is the faulty transmission or this is you stripping the clutch that might cause you some trouble a little bit down the road. What are some of those assessment patterns that you like to take people through? Yeah. And my favorite analogy there is actually driving with the emergency brake on that, uh, you know, and I think, uh, Kelly Starrett, one of my, uh, I guess role models talks about that. And he, uh, he, he actually tells a story where he pulled up in, I think Mexico or something like that. And, uh, they pulled up to the, uh, the, the hotel and didn't realize their engine was on fire because <laughs> they actually had the emergency brake on the whole time. And it was just driving like that. So yeah, uh, at this point I still, you know, again, because a lot of stuff is also virtual, uh, I still have I've really relied on um, just basic movement patterns. So let's take a look from a diff- couple of different angles. Um, you know, again, with those at this point, again, millions of reps, let's say, <laughs> in the course of my career, I think I've become a very good assessor of movement, movement faults. And we break it down to the the seven basic movement patterns that the primal body can do is push, pull more in the upper body, hinge, squat, lunge in the lower body, twist and then uh, gait or, or ambulate, so to speak, as the seventh. So we look at as much of that as possible, and, and that gives us a lot of information. Uh, in physical therapy practice, too, we, we, we're going to talk for 30 minutes, you know, so, so I make sure that you're telling me your story, you're telling me what's going on, I'm going to pull out whatever information I deem most relevant of. Again, like, yeah, every time, oh, I didn't even realize, yeah, my neck kind of has a thing going on here, and, it, you know, I, st- I feel a little tingling in my arms. You know, whatever that is, those things certainly add up to me. The other big piece that I, I utilize is a handheld dynamometer, which costs about $1,000. Um, and I've had it for a while, um, and the batteries are very hard to find. It allows me, uh, in the old school practice, there used to be these huge Cybex machines, which are the size of, you know, my room that I'm in currently or, or that you're in now. And those things cost tons of money, and they eventually kind of, you know, got uh, fossiled out, dinosaured out. They became extinct. Um, they're still used a bit in, in high-level uh, performance. But with my hand uh, being able to provide some resistance against, say, again, your arm holding out in front of you, and I'm pushing your arm down, in traditional physical therapy practice, we rate that on a, on a manual muscle therapy scale saying, oh, you have like a four plus out of five, which there's different ways that we categorize that. But in athletic populations, those numbers are very difficult to uh, utilize, especially if I'm working with someone who's really strong. I'm just not going to be able to break them. 
uh, no matter how much uh, you know force I put on or what mechanical advantage I, I take. So uh, with the handheld dynamometer, it allows me to say, hey, your you know right shoulder flexion provides, when I put the handheld dynamometer on, 72 kilograms of force. When I do it with your left, it's only 52 kilograms of force. And we're doing this over a few reps. It gives us very objective numbers, which again, the majority of athletes that we're talking about that we're working with, they like to see, hey, how many kilograms of weight did I, you know, lift right. or pounds for some um, <laughs> and or stones for, for the British. But yeah, how many, how, how much did I lift? And it gives us that very clear number of, again, 72 to 52 right versus left. It tells us something's going on. It puts into that whole equation of everything going on. So again, unfortunately, there's no like magical system, you know, like, uh, you know, sometimes people are looking for, oh, what's the next thing? Like I need diagnostic ultrasound or I need, you know, blood flow restriction training, all these things. And again, there's places where they fit. Um, there's things that each of these modalities will do, but I try to, you know, I, I keep it old school, so to speak. Um, you know, guys like Dan John, uh, who you've had on, which was a great episode. People should go back and listen to that one. It goes back to the simple kind of assessments of, yeah, like how many kettlebell swings can you do in a certain period of time? If you don't have pain with that, awesome. Like if you, you know, if you have pain with certain things, then we're going to need to figure out why that's going on. So um, it becomes this kind of global, uh, ambiguous almost testing, but but it's definitely based out of, hey, like this is the only, and this is where... Uh, speaking of the, the current age, and, and we joked around about not going into political climate, but you know, there's a lot of AI coming along, technology, some of those conversations. And uh, I think that's where physical therapy might, you know, we, we, we joke about it, but I don't think it's going to have a place for AI to come in and say, oh, if you have X, Y, and Z, like we have to give you this intervention, uh, again, whatever it is, you need surgery if you have these things. There are some of these clinical prediction rules out there that you know the researchers have tried to come up with, but I just don't foresee any time in the near future uh, taking the science that we have and turning it into this like very definitive thing. There's this this art form of coaching and art form of being a practitioner, which is why they call it physical therapy practice or medical practice. We're we're all kind of out here. If it was just a rule book and it said again. If David Tao blinks with his left eye, then we have to, <laughs> then we have to do, you know, we have to give him a cortisone injection in his right knee. If it was like that, then yeah, it, you know, we'd all be out of a job. But it, again, would it be a better world? I don't know. I don't know. That's not for us to decide. <laughs> I mean, you're taking on the role of investigator oftentimes. And the person, the, the subject you're interviewing is inherently unreliable because we cannot be perfectly objective about ourselves. So if I'm describing pain or I'm describing my movement patterns or my lifestyle as, or, or my training as I see it, it's not going to be objective. I'm going to have some subjective bias there when I describe it to you. So you have to take that information. You have to cross-references of what you're actually seeing in the physical realm. And you have to see where the deltas are, right? Where is the patient or the client being a little bit unreliable? Where are they maybe not seeing things? Because if they're being purely, truly objective about themselves, they might not have trained through that injury or they might not have pushed that movement pattern so much. Absolutely. And, and what, what that brings up for me is the, uh, the actual model of evidence-based practice. That's a term that gets thrown around or research-based or research-informed. And, and what that true model that I you know, uh, believe in is, is by Sackett at all <laughs> in, in the research space. And what it looks at in evidence-based is there's three parts to uh, the, the, uh, the way we should practice. One is clinician experience. So in my thousands of, uh, you know, patients that I've seen with that similar condition, what have I seen? 
the other third, uh, second third would be, uh, what does the research say? So again, if, if it's saying, you know, elbow tendonitis, uh, medial epicondylitis, whatever fancy term we're going to use, uh, you know, this is what the research says. And then the third part is that uh, patient, again, experience, they have cultural things going on. They have, you know, again, that's very well documented that different cultures have different tendencies for pain. Uh, men and women have different, <laughs> you know, tolerances for pain, things like that. So, uh, and yet, yeah, what are you put? What are you willing to push through things like that? So, yeah, it's putting all three of those pieces together. Have you seen Dark yet? By the way, we were talking about that on our <laughs> text thread. It's all about the triad, man. It's all about the triad. The, the, I knew there was going to be some pop culture reference that I didn't get. <laughs> it wouldn't be a conversation with Boba Banco if there wasn't some. If there wasn't a pop culture <laughs> reference that made me feel very unplugged. So I'm glad we hit that. I'm glad we got there you that go. in there. <laughs> I, needed to, I needed to get it. I know we were running down on time. So. We, we could do a whole other podcast on, on the pop culture references that I should understand and you're disappointed <laughs> in me for not understanding. But that's, that's a different episode, part two. Yeah. But where is the best place for people to keep up to date with, uh, with the work you're doing? Uh, my Instagram is usually the, the, the best place. And I actually just started a podcast of my own, Bo Knows Stuff. Um, and I think that's available on all major podcasts, but Instagram is Dr. Bo Babenko, D-R-B-O-B-A-B-E-N-K-O. And, uh, I wanted to go with Dr. Bo knows, but that's actually taken. It is what it is. So yeah, hopefully that, that finds you guys. And then my, my company is fit care physio that if you care about your fitness, uh, you're going to be able to avoid the health care system. So fitcarephysio.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll make sure to have all that in the show notes. Thank you.